The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined by The Spectator's associate editor, Douglas Murray. And we're going to be looking back over the year. And because this is the Americano podcast, it's going to be a focus on American politics. And Douglas, you've spent a bit of time in America this year. And so I think you're you're a very good person to talk to about this. But I'd like to start by looking at something that happened to Joe Biden yesterday. He was asked by a reporter, well, a reporter confronted him and said, you know, 800,000 Americans have died of COVID. And why are you not putting more pressure on the Chinese government to be more transparent about the origins of the virus? And Biden just looked at him and laughed and walked off. And I mean, it struck me as a very, very odd reaction to what should be an extremely important political question. And I wondered if you saw it and what you thought about that, and whether you agreed with me that it was a very, very odd thing for a president to do or a very odd way for him to respond. It was odd, very odd, but it's not uncharacteristic, nor is it some example of late Biden. It's the sort of thing you could see Biden doing at almost any stage in his career. He is a great political survivor from his decades in politics. He's learned how to brush things aside. He's learned how to laugh things off. He often does so in a very creepy, frankly, manner. And that, I thought, was what was occurring in the clip you described. It was almost as if you were saying, you've got to be joking if you think I'm going to answer that question. But here's one of the problems, as, as you know, Freddie, that is one of the problems of the setup of the political system in the US, which is that who can demand answers of the American president? I think it's fair to say that Congress and Senate can, political opponents can ask, the media can ask, but there isn't anything quite like the, the system in Britain of holding to account and forcing politicians to answer questions on very serious matters. The question of who gets to ask and have their questions answered is shown in America to be an un, unanswered question itself. Joe Biden got away with it and he will continue to be able to get away with this for some time until it's such a moment as it becomes politically untenable. But it's interesting on China, isn't it? Because when Biden came in and since he's been president, there's been a lot of talk about Taiwan. There's been a lot of talk about how American strategy generally, the State Department, has changed its attitude towards China. And yet on this very key question of the origins of the virus, and I, obviously you can go down many rabbit holes here, but it seems to me an important question. The American government, the American president, is showing no interest whatsoever. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as I say, laughs the question away. Yeah. I think there's a number of re reasons for that. One comes down to this thing I'm forever banging on about, about the bifurcation of American politics and the two sets of realities that now exist in America. Not just two different opinions or two different interpretations, but two totally different realities that exist. 
even to the extent of disagreement on who won the 2016 election and who won the 2020 election. I mean, uh, it's inconceivable, perhaps, for some British listeners, but imagine what British politics would be like if there was a significant chunk of Labour Party voters, indeed a majority, who believed that Jeremy Corbyn had legitimately won the 2019 election. <laughs> what would that do to British politics? What, what would it have done to British politics if, you know, two or three previous elections were still contested? I think it sows enormous distrust, enormous fear, and much more. And the Biden unwillingness to address the source of the virus, I think to an extent, plays into that. Donald Trump, of course, did talk about the source of the virus. And in American politics, if Donald Trump talks about something, then the job of everybody who hates Donald Trump is to not talk about that thing or to say that thing shouldn't be talked about. So that even discussing the origin of the virus becomes a sort of Trumpish thing to do and plays into, I don't know, anti-Asian racism, for instance. I mean, it's, it's as bad as that, the American debate, on these very serious issues. Well, another serious issue is Biden's mental state. And again, just for sort of flagging the idea that he doesn't seem to be entirely compass mentors, one is accused of peddling Trumpist talking points of doing, you know, Fox News propaganda. But, I mean, even Fox News isn't doing that propaganda to a large extent. So no, it it's odd that you say these things that just seem like legitimate questions mm. and you are accused of peddling Trumpist propaganda. Well, again, I mean, Biden's physical frailty, his mental frailty is there for all to see. And the best evidence of it is the fact that he is kept away from the media so completely. I mean... Look at what happened in the summer with Afghanistan. It's inconceivable, I would suggest, that if Trump had gone ahead with his plan for exiting Afghanistan, that it would have been tolerated if everything had fallen apart as badly as it did under Biden, that the American press just sort of accepted they didn't get to ask any questions. You know, the president made his remarks and left the podium. I mean, he's literally not answerable. And parts of the media in America are, some surprising parts are starting to notice that and starting to mind it. But as I say, if he was in fine fettle, he would be in front of the media, he would be answering questions, he wouldn't just do the occasional appearance as the blades of his helicopter already rotating and <laughs> pretend he can't hear them or, or laugh it away. Well, let's talk about Afghanistan, because for me in this past year, that was the moment when a lot of people who didn't think there was something wrong with Joe Biden started to think there might be something wrong with him. And that, I think, was because a lot of the non-right-wing media started criticising him in, in earnest. And what was it about Afghanistan, which ironically was something that a lot of the American people wanted to do? I mean, that's he was doing what a lot of Trump voters wanted to do and a lot of independent voters wanted to do, which was get out of Afghanistan. He botched it. The American military botched it, perhaps. But why was it that that became this seemingly now key turning point in his presidency? Well, first of all, of course, it was a demonstration of American weakness. We should preface this by the fact that Joe Biden had always wanted to get out of Afghanistan. We know from even from memoirs of parts of the Obama administration that as far back as 2011, you know, Biden said, you know, F the Afghans. Effectively, you know, we just need to get out. So this had been his view. And many people, by the way, including some Republicans, actually sort of secretly admire him for going through with a very unpopular policy. It's, it's quite interesting that the president was willing to spend so much political capital on 
exiting Afghanistan, whatever the human and military and reputational cost. Yes, something Trump wasn't willing to do, despite his commitment. Yeah. Yes, I think that there's no doubt that if Trump had been in office, the manner of the withdrawal would have been different, not least because, as I've heard from a number of people, what the former president said to the head of the Taliban about what would happen if any American soldiers were killed put enough fear into the Taliban to not have done something like what happened at Kabul airport in the, in the final days before the withdrawal. The bigger thing, though, is, is the question of American reputation and American competence in the wake of Afghanistan. And that's what so many people minded in the summer when this happened. So many, that's why so many Democrats and others started to worry. There has always been a complexity about the Afghan conflict which is that a conflict that began for security reasons turned into a sort of human rights-based war justification. You know, the war started by American allies going in to get al-Qaeda and it ended up being a war to make sure that Afghan girls could go to school. And therefore it was a sort of a move that made it hard for the American left to be totally calculating and unmoved by such calls. It just, it just made it hard. And... I would say that that was a portion of the, the reason why people responded as they did in the summer to the, the manner of the withdrawal. The bigger strategic question, of course, is, is the one that should concern us. And I think that it is concerning. I think that many Americans see this, that the, the scenes were too reminiscent of Hanoi. They were too reminiscent of, of just previous American retreats. It was a humiliating reminder that it's been decades since America won a war. You could say Gulf War won. But much of the post-World War II dominance of America has been spent on conflicts that have failed. Conflicts in which America has been beaten to a draw at best by much less well-equipped forces. And of course... The question then is, who is watching and what are they going to do? I think there is a, there's an awful lot of speculation there always is about what China or Russia might be doing, might be eyeing up. Afghanistan will certainly be seen, I think, as being a, an event that exacerbated the actions of America's rivals, that people saw that America could be humiliated and that America was not willing to spend or pay the cost needed to stop such humiliation. Of course that's going to be seen by its rivals and by its opponents. So of course uh, Vladimir Putin will be seeing whether or not he can grab Ukraine. Of course the Chinese will be seeing whether or not they can grab Taiwan or the manner in which they could do it. And that's really why people turned on Biden was maybe instead of being the world hyperpower, the world's sole superpower, we're actually becoming the world's loser. And the global order is going to change as a result, and very much for the worse. Another reason why I think people started to see America as the world's loser was because of something you touched on there, which is that the obvious strategic purpose of getting involved in Afghanistan was an anti-terrorism activity, as you suggest, within a few years turned into an attempt to educate Afghan women, say, on the value of education, a noble endeavour in many ways, but then that also turned into educating Afghan villagers about trans rights and things like that. And, and it, got, it got sort of lost in the universal but nonetheless ridiculous 
ideas of the progressive democratic left in America. Yes. We ran Spectator, I think, earlier this year, that video that I think you said, Freddie, was the sort of the moment where you could see the war being lost, which was when the sort of NATO instructor was trying to teach Afghan women about Duchamp and the urinal displayed in Paris a century ago and these Afghan women just looked completely disgusted that this, uh, as if anything, they were turning against the West moment by moment as this education class went on. I would say that it's not just something that's common in the modern era, it's something that's common throughout the history of warfare. A war begins for one reason, it morphs, it then takes on its own, its own momentum. Can see that for anything from the Peloponnesian Wars through right through to wars of the 21st century, they start for one reason and then they, as I say, the, the hurricane takes on its own momentum and you find people whirling around looking for reasons to explain why the thing has started. Well, I suppose it's imperialism, isn't it? It's, you know, we've often got involved in other countries or other wars with a view to establishing the the superior value of our values. And in Afghanistan, I think they took a look at our values and they said, no, we see no attraction in them whatsoever. Well, it may be that the history books see Afghanistan as the sort of hubristic end point of a form of expansive Western liberalism, to use a much abused term, an overused term, but nevertheless that perhaps Afghanistan was and will be seen as the ultimate example of that. It was taken for granted by a general... Tony Blair admitted this, actually, uh, in 2021 in an interview. He admitted that maybe we had overestimated the extent to which our values were going to be easily shared by all sorts of other peoples. But that's because the West is confused in this regard. And I would say that, that the reason why none of this really is an imperialist project it never demonstrated that it had the, the guts to be so, or the desire to be so. Something I've written a number of times has been you know, that if America was indeed an empire, it would produce the sort of people that the British Empire produced who wanted to learn languages, go off to far-flung places and spend their lives effectively governing them. America doesn't produce those people, for better or worse. But, and the worst-case scenario is you end up having a sort of quasi-empire that spreads values it doesn't really believe in very strongly itself, or at least believes to be in contest, led by people who don't want to stay around. But also, I mean, worse, worse than that, wouldn't you say? I mean, they are spreading values about their own culture, and those values suggest that the culture that they're exporting is evil. So they are, they are teaching people that they, as the dominating imperial force, hate themselves. So it, it doesn't really spread very naturally. It doesn't. It would have been understated. I think it would have been nice if it had been possible for people in countries benighted as Afghanistan to recognise the equality of women. But it's almost certainly beyond the capability of Britain, America or any of her allies to force such an opinion on the people of Afghanistan, let alone on the warlords and, and the people who, who famously had the time to see this through. Well, I mean, going back to America itself, there's a sort of sense that the Democratic Party are going to fail in the next year, despite what Joe Biden said the other day, he says we're going to win 2022, but that the midterms are coming up next year, the Democrats seem to be taking a pasting for the wokeism, the culture wars, the excessive culture wars. Obviously, the economy 
is also a big factor too. But do you think the Democratic Party has eaten itself alive with wokeism? It has to an extent. You see something similar to what has happened on the left in the UK, which is that the wilder extremes are political kryptonite at the polls. People really don't like this trans extremism, the critical race theory teaching to children in schools, the self-hatred. They don't like this. And when parents and others get a chance to voice their opinions on this, they make, they make their views very clear. There are elements of the Democratic Party, as with the Labour Party in the UK, who recognise this, who recognise this as political kryptonite, and are trying to get the people doing that out of the way. However, to a great extent, those are the motivating people. Those are the motivated people. The ones who believe that they are on a great crusade to um, you know, abolish sex, for instance. I mean, well... Sex, which they call gender. They also might yeah. just abolish sex. Yeah. But, yes, the, these, these sort of ultra-crusading woke types are, as I say, by the more sensible parts of the party recognised to be very dangerous to them at the polls. I would expect that in the midterms the Democrats will take a pacing for this, among other reasons. I think it's also a traditional swing of the dial. It usually happens at midterms. And from then, of course, we inevitably, because America is always campaigning for the next election, ineluctably it will move to the discussion of 2024. Yes. But, I mean, with Biden himself, I think you've said this, that nobody voted for Joe Biden because they thought he was going to lead the Democratic Party's ideas about critical race theory. He wasn't going to push them on schools. Nobody thought that's that's what we're getting with Joe Biden. And yet they find that's what they are getting and they're revolting against it, it seems, by recent election results anyway. Yes, obviously the election of Youngkin, the governor in Virginia, was the, the sort of high point of that. By the way, there's a, there's a demonstration of a certain weakness on the American right that the election of a governor should have caused so much excitement to such an extent that, that there has been discussion of Youngkin being a presidential candidate in a couple of years' time. Yes. That does actually demonstrate a certain, I would say, almost but not quite, panic on the American right. I'd agree with that. So I think what you're saying is that there's sort of desperation that finally we can have someone who can do Trumpism, but we can like because, you know, he wears the right kind of clothes and he seems nice. He was a very impressive campaigner. He was very deft in the way he handled Donald Trump in his lair in Mar-a-Lago. He didn't go to pay homage. He didn't go to kiss the ring and pay court to him. And, of course, Trump claimed the victory <laughs> afterwards, as, as he would, but Youngkin managed to get around the Trump question. That's what's excited a lot of people on the American right, who recognise that Trump has some virtues from his time in office and great, some very significant achievements from his time in office, is himself a great motivating factor for a portion of the country and is also a demotivating factor for many others, not least because of the manner in which he left office in uh, January of 2021. Well, that, you know, January in itself has become quite a talking point in right-wing circles, and there is quite a substantial chunk of the Trumpist support base that think that in some way it was a, you know, FBI-fed sting operation. I mean, do you worry that parts of the right that have sensible ideas about some things, are so conspiracy theory mad now that they can't see the truth from their anger. It is becoming very hard in America to arrive at a settled consensus on anything. 
and as you mentioned, the January the 6th protest is a good example. Even among Trump's supporters, there is this great disagreement over exactly what it was that went on and what attitude they should take towards it. My own attitude, is, by the way, is there should be, because there have been um, prosecutions already, and there might be many more to come, of people who entered the Capitol that day. And my own view is that some of this is clearly disproportionate to what they did, that people mm. have been kept in solitary confinement for many months, have been sentenced to significant chunks in prison for, in some cases, not in all, of course, but in some cases for effectively wandering into the capital. Some people are obviously violent, and there are some interesting cases of people who, are, who I, th- I think may get off, who have good defence lawyers, who I think will be able to show that effectively we're in a period of uh, political prosecutions. Now, you may say that's completely right, but there is an unevenness here which is noted. I would say that it's perfectly right to prosecute anybody who who takes part in a riot. But in that case, there are many people who were involved in the the riots in the summer of 2020 who should be prosecuted, and there is no likelihood of them being prosecuted. And this is the sort of thing that feeds into this endless digging down, circle after circle, low after low, of disagreeing on the facts in America. The problem is, is you get this sense of political persecution because the other side did get away with something. You know, it, Democrat politicians did egg on rioters in the summer of 2020. Did Donald Trump and members of his family and immediate circle egg on the rioters on the January the 6th? I'd say yes, certainly they did. Um, I think it's undeniable when you see the footage of Kimberly Guilfoy dating one of the Trump sons watching the screens of when the Trump family is watching the protesters go up to the Capitol. And it is true that the president has said, go make your voice heard peacefully. Mm. But then you see them watching the rioters, uh, the, the protesters, who, some of whom become rioters, going up to the Capitol. And Kimberly Guilfoy says to the camera, fight, fight, fight for the live stream. You think this is literally fighting talk. This is literally incitement because you have a crowd and you're telling them to fight. Yes. And we know from, I mean, again, this is, all has to be so heavily caveated, but there are Democrats who are just couldn't be more thrilled that this was the manner in which Donald Trump left office. They are thrilled that they get the opportunity to present sort of white Trump-supporting men and women as the main terrorist threat in the US. It couldn't have gone better for them. On the other hand, there is a great unwillingness in parts of the Trump-supporting right to concede that the, the way he and others around him behaved on that day was fateful. And we, we've seen from the text messages and, and much more that started to become released in recent days, the fact that people close to Trump realised this and were saying, you've got to stop it. This is destroying your legacy. They knew who to tell to stop because they knew who had effectively started it. And Trump himself did, of course, in the end, come out and say, I concede the election effectively because he recognised that this was a disaster. I mean, also, it's true that this did start, in a way, with the fact that the Democratic Party and a large part of the American media and the American population even didn't accept the 2016 result. Yes. And they were as conspiratorial, if not more so in some ways, about what actually happened in 2016 for several years. And this wasn't treated in the mainstream media as terrorism. It was treated as the quest for truth, the quest for justice. And so you can see why the, the Trumpists feel that this is war. One of the fastest ways to put kindling under any group in New York in particular 
is to make the point that you have just made. You can burn down almost any dinner party or... or, or I can imagine you've done this a few times, Doug. Well, <laughs> I couldn't possibly say, but it's an incredibly unpopular but truthful thing to say. I was having this out recently with somebody in New York, but I made this exact point. I said, you know, Trump only could do what he did in 2020 in terms of claiming that he'd won the election because... You know, the other side hadn't accepted that they'd lost in 2016. The rejoinder was, of course, Hillary conceded. Yes, she conceded in 2016 and then went on to tell her main funders in the first post-defeat call that the defeat had been orchestrated by the Russians. And they didn't let that go for four years. And they wasted an awful lot of time and American energy going round this. Now, the, the argument... Not, not only that, can I just butt in there, Doug? Not only that, Hillary Clinton also said to Joe Biden, if you lose this election, do not concede. Yes. Uh, and so yeah. I think you can certainly see, and I do, what Trump did in claiming victory on election night and then behaving, I think, appallingly in the weeks and months afterwards. You can see this as a ramping up of something that had been done to him from 2016 onwards. Now, as I say, when you make this point, everybody goes mad. But I would say that the moment that you say, even if you say that what Trump did was a hundred times worse than what Clinton did, even if you make that claim, I would still say that it was only possible for him to dare to try it because in 2016, many of the Democrats had dared to do it the other way around. I think that this is a... It's a very, very dangerous game to play. The Democrats had proven themselves willing to play it in 2016. And so, of course, Donald Trump should have surprised nobody in being willing to play it even more viciously and uh, untruthfully in 2020. And this puts us on quite a bad path going forward in, in American... I've just said going forward. Yes. Going forward. Going forward, uh, as we must. Going forward, as we must. In American elections, where I can't see a situation where Americans are willing to accept democratic results in the future, which is a real problem in the world's biggest and greatest democracy. It's a tragedy, Freddie. It's a terrible tragedy that the world's most prominent democracy at this point in history, standing uh, with only one main competitor, a rival, which is communist China, should find itself at home with an electorate that does not believe the results of elections and cannot agree on the results of elections. I don't overstate it, but I think it is a disaster for the democracies of the world. It is exceptionally hard for Americans to justify making statements about the validity of an election, say, in the Ukraine, if they don't have any agreement on the validity of an election in Georgia. Yes. by which I mean the state of Georgia, not the country. You know, so this is a disaster for the democracies of the world at a very a crucial juncture, as I say, because in the years ahead, it is possible that China overtakes America. It's the only country likely to do so. It has its own set of values. They are complete anathema to the system of values that America and the Anglosphere West has held in the 20th century and before. But if it, it is part of a rot, I'm afraid that um, I don't say is fatal because the game is still in play, but it could be fatal. I mean, don't you think that's Trump's greatest error? I think he made lots of errors, but his greatest error is even if he had reason to believe that the election was rigged and stolen from him, the act of denouncing it as a fraud is a great crime. I mean, Nixon famously had good reason to believe that 
the election of Kennedy was dubious in some states, Chicago in particular, but he decided to not complain and to, you know, just accept it, take it on the chin. Trump never would have done that. And that is perhaps his greatest sin. Would you agree with that? It's one of them, yes. Uh, <laughs> I was wrong on this. I mean, I thought I saw an interview with him where he was asked whether he would concede if he lost, and he said, of course I will. And I, I believed that that was going to be the case. It didn't occur to me that he really, this very seriously, that he actually was going to contest and say he had not lost. I think, as I say, it's led to this new low in American politics. It's, it's extremely hard to unite the country when you have not just two different sets of opinions, but two different sets of facts. Mm. And the question now, of course, is whether or not the American right can get through that can stop looking backwards and look forwards to 2022 and 2024. Trump himself shows a total unwillingness to move forward. In several recent interviews, he's harped on and on about the results of 2020. And by the way, I would just, I mean, we mustn't get stuck on Trump, but I would say that there's an important point here, which is that by Trump's own standards, he is a loser. Now, this is a point that Trump supporters don't like me making, but by Trump's own standards, he is a loser. Now, you might say, well, the game was rigged against him. Well, here's my, my version of that. Donald Trump has spent his life in property business, in real estate. And if you go in and buy a building you know not, where the people selling it to you are crooks or something, and you end up out of pocket, you're still the mug. It's structurally unsound. Yes. And it falls down after you've bought it. Or yeah. to put it another way, if you go into a casino and you know <laughs> that the casino is corrupt and you put all of your money into the casino and lose, you're still the loser. I mean, you can, you yeah. can, you can complain that the casino was corrupt, but you're, you still lost. And in Trumpish terms of winners and losers, I'm afraid on his own terms, he is a loser. And this is not something he's psychologically capable of accepting. Yes. So the problem that the Republicans have is, how can we look forward and not just have this endless replay of 2020? And uh, this is a very important point for the party. They need to have a positive vision, a positive candidate. I believe that there are many people who would be very, very fine Republican candidates in 2024 who need to be freed up to begin to run. And as long as Trump doesn't declare what he's going to do, these people are, these candidates are not willing to come out of the starting blocks because they know whoever comes out of the starting blocks first gets shot by Trump. And my own view is that somebody should go out and just take that fire and everybody else can then come out running as well. But then there's quite a lot of rumors about who that might be. But I think it has to be, I mean, people say that maybe Chris Christie will go, will, will just come out and be the the runner that gets savaged. But so I, think done it it before. To, I think it has to be a more plausible candidate myself. Yes. Well, lastly, Douglas, I want to ask you a point that I've been meaning to talk to you about for a while, because I know you have some experience of the American media and some experience of the British media. Which is worse, do you think? Which is in <laughs> a worse state at the moment? Well, that's a very loaded question and goes to the source of my livelihood. So I'm, um, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm deeply there. Thank you for ending the year on this. Very dangerous, yeah. potentially career-ending landmine. Um, let me delicately... That's really good, is what you were saying. Yes, let, let me commit career Harry Kiri right here on this. <laughs> I tell you, the, the thing that strikes me most is the way in which the American print media is actually far less diverse than the British print media. 
Americans find it quite hard to accept this when I mention it to them. But, you know, Britain has a very thriving right-of-centre media. I mean, you might say, actually, I think it's perfectly provable that there are more right-of-centre publications in the UK than there are left-of-centre publications. That is the opposite way round in America. The American print media is almost entirely left-wing, with the exceptions of the, of the Wall Street Journal and uh, the New York Post. In fact, if it hadn't been for the journal, there wouldn't have been any, I think maybe the Post, I might be correct on that, but if it hadn't been for them, there would have been no American media who had even considered the possibility that Trump could get into office and could do some good in 2016. In other words, the media in America, to a great extent, runs as a blob against people. It runs en masse, it runs as a pack, and it runs in one direction. And I would say that we can pat ourselves on the back uh, as Brits for this, but I would say the British media is, is, is in a much healthier position. It may not feel like that always, but I would say that it is in a much healthier position. It's a more diverse media. It doesn't run in, uh, quite in the same way as a pack. It doesn't just, you know, unite and go against candidates. In America, that's, that's different. America broadcast media is a different question. We've seen these very interesting developments this year in the launch of a channel, GB News, in Britain, which has attempted to take on a bit of the space that exists of people who are disenfranchised from the BBC. My own view is that this is a very tricky proposition because the BBC, whilst undoubtedly creating much of the cultural weather in the UK, and undoubtedly some like me on the, on the Conservative side is, is obviously left-leaning, of course, I caveat that with the fact that people on the left tend to think that it's right-leaning, but I think it's undoubtedly left-leaning, and it, and it has a disproportionate effect on the national debate. The, the point of GB News, therefore, is was there ever, is there ever an audience big enough in television on the right in the UK that actually believes the BBC is, is a left-wing institution and can't be trusted and so on? That's tricky, and we're going to find out in the months and years ahead. In America, it's quite different. Again, British viewers don't get to see American television. They just hear about it, and they hear, this, they hear the name Fox bandied around, and they have very little understanding of the diversity of views on Fox, apart from anything else. CNN, MSNBC, they run like anything against candidates. They, they are campaigning entities. They decide the narrative, and they stick with it. And... Fox is the one channel on the right in the mainstream in, in America that opposes that consensus of the CNN, MSNBC channels. Oh, and I would just add that Fox is wildly popular. In slot after slot throughout the day, Fox News dominates the ratings. And mm. this is something which, again, people don't seem to concentrate on or don't seem to want to concentrate on. But if you just take the late night shows, there's a show I've been on, hosted by Greg Gutfeld on Fox, Within weeks of it starting, it's a late night sort of comedy panel show, within weeks of it starting, it was the top rated show in its hour on the networks. Now, this goes against in the same hour as, I think, Stephen Colbert. Yeah, who used to be funny. Yeah. It used to be funny. Who's that other, that incredibly unfunny British man who never really was funny and now he's just a soul? John Oliver. You know, these, these people, as you say, used to be funny. They now do these incredibly boring, tedious, sententious monologues. And this is meant to be the comedy hour. Greg Gutfeld's show started and it immediately is a top rating because people want to enjoy themselves in that hour. So there's a very interesting difference between Britain and America in the print media and in the broadcast media. 
And it's very hard for people in each country to recognise the differences. Well, I was asked to do a speech recently about the differences between British and American media, and I didn't have a clue what to say. So I asked Tucker Carlson about it, and I'm just going to read out what he said about the differences between the two. He said, I don't want to talk about British... We talked about British politics. In journalism, he said, the difference... He's talking about the difference between the US and the UK media. The difference is obvious. Not every British journalist comes from the same social class. Working-class people with no college degrees are still allowed to do it. Not the case here at all. In the US, every single person in every single elite newsroom comes from exactly the same world. Journalism is what ruling-class children do when they're too stupid for finance. (laughs) (laughs) That's excellent. It's an alternative way to get power. These aren't people who are interested in books or facts or free speech or telling stories. They're only interested in being in charge. There's a reason there's no Daily Mail in the United States. And I didn't quite have the guts to say to him, the Daily Mail is actually run by the Prime Minister's wife. But I thought about it. (laughs) But, I mean, he has a point there. I think he he probably has a slightly rose-tinted view of the British media, but he's essentially right that the, the American media is much more of a class thing. It's much more of an elite thing than it is in Britain. I think that's completely right. The tendency of people to sort of go and get endless degrees in journalism before practising it is is much more common in the US. As I think Nick Cohen has observed in the UK, certainly in recent years, the biggest growth area in journalism is only of journalists teaching journalism. (laughs) Um, But two two important things to say here. The, The first is that as the fees paid to journalists in America have declined in real terms in recent decades. This question that Tucker lands on has come into play, which is effectively not just who can afford to be in journalism, but if you're not being very well paid, what kind of currency can you be paid in? And the answer is in the esteem of your peers. And that turns people from being a a relatively well-remunerated reporter into being somebody who is poorly paid but who wishes to be seen as a warrior and a crusader and everyone wants to be the next Bob Woodward. Everything has got gate attached to it afterwards. And they're effectively paid in the esteem of their liberal peers. So that's the first thing. The second thing is is that Tucker is almost entirely right. I think there are exceptions. Again, the most obvious one being the New York Post. But by and large, American media is, is very... And people take themselves awfully seriously columnists and uh, reporters behave rather like we might expect an old-fashioned professor to behave. They expect renown, they expect respect. I had an interesting example in the summer when I was speaking to a a group of students and I used the term hack and uh, one girl said, what's a hack? And (laughs) I thought that was a very interesting point and it made me try to explain this difference between American and British journalists. And I say, well, a hack is a sort of a roguish chap, you know, slightly. I mean, you know, my, my favourite quote from H.L. Mencken is that he says something like, progress was never made without jolly fellows heaving dead cats into sanctuaries and going roistering down the highways of the world. Hacks do that. They throw bombs. They cause trouble. They fall out with it. They, they raise concerns of people. They don't care to be invited to the White House correspondence dinner. They don't care to have little, tiny little bits of access given to them to see, you know, Kamala Harris on the campaign trail and fly on the plane. You know, they don't, they don't care about that. But I thought it was fascinating that that type of, of journalist, the hack, is uncommon in America. And you can see it, the results in the media. And I'd, I'd say again, 
I like the British system of that. It was always said that the sun was a good example of, you know, run by a terrific combination of East End boys and Etonians, you know, and there was something in that. And I think that a system that allows for people with talent to come into it and to thrive in it is obviously going to be a better system. And you cannot look at American print journalism today in the main and say that it's the place where talented people go. Mm. Well, Douglas, we've got to wrap it up there. But I would finally like to say thank you very much for doing our last Americano of the year, I think, unless something terribly drastic happens. Happy Christmas. And I think we should have a toast. I've been sent some whiskey. It's some whiskey that they wanted us to put on the podcast. It's supposed to be whiskey that tastes like your jumper. I don't know what they meant what? by that. It tastes like your jumper? It tastes like your jumper. I don't. I think it's meant to be warm and soothing. Who's ever uh, sucked their jumper? And thought, how delicious. It's Glenn Ranji. I'm not doing the PR oh. any favours by saying what they said. But anyway, it's very nice whiskey. I highly recommend it. If you don't want to drink your jumper, I would have um, some of this Glenn Ranji. If I may say so, uh, I, I join you in, in wishing you a happy Christmas. If I have just blown up my media career, <laughs> would you at least send me the Glen Morangi so that yeah. I can drink it in bed as I, as, as, <laughs> as I get all of the firing notices? I agree. And can we lastly raise a toast to David Aronovich, our favourite hag? <laughs> uh, I wish him a very, very happy Christmas you've, and a happy 2022. We'll you, see him in 2022. You always only wished him the best, Freddie. <laughs> That's all I want. That's all I want. All I want for Christmas. Thank you for that in-joke to finish with. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Douglas. All the best. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. (laughs) 